0: Uh, there is uh, uh it's Palm Sunday, and uh, I'm sure that many of you will be reflecting this week about uh, what's going to be transpiring, what transpired uh, many years ago when Jesus arrived into Jerusalem. I'm sure that many of you uh, probably have the custom of, of today initiating, thinking about how it was to be there in Jerusalem and have uh, the people praising and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. I'm sure you, you try to mentalize, uh, you know, picture that and uh, meditate on that truth. And as the, as the week will progress, you'll also progress in the events that transpired while Jesus was here that last week uh, before his death. And uh, that's a very important thing to do. It's, uh, I would encourage you to, to think about when he was in the upper room. And, uh, you can read uh, John chapter 15, 16, 17, uh, talking about why they're in the, this upper room and that discussion and the prayer that he has to the Father, his desire for that unity uh, to be with the disciples. Uh, but I uh, do something in my preaching, which is... Um, Uh, It's a continuous reading of the text, which is we we keep on moving forward. And uh, it doesn't line up with the holidays, usually. (laughs) Uh, Very rarely uh, do we ever fall on a Mother's Day and I'm in the book of Ruth or, you know, something like that, you know. It just doesn't happen. And um, there's advantages uh, and disadvantages. The disadvantage is that some people will feel like, well, it's Palm Sunday, something of palmness should be mentioned, or it's Mother's Day. Something of motherness should be mentioned. Uh, And that is the the downside. The upside, though, is that um, uh, certain passages don't get uh, avoided. We we, we read them. And uh, even though that the passage can be very difficult, and maybe uh, against what's maybe happening culturally, we proceed on and move through it. And the passage that we have today is a difficult passage. Uh, It's a very hard passage, and I don't want us to feel uh, beat up by the end of this sermon, uh, because what Jesus will present here is very difficult. The temptation will be that uh, let's just avoid this whole topic altogether. Let's talk about Palm Sunday. Let's talk about Easter, and then when we come back, we'll jump into Matthew chapter 20, right? It'll be a lot easier. No one will get offended. Uh, We'll be able to breathe just nicely, Uh, but... Unfortunately, I haven't heeded wisdom, and we're going to move on forward through Matthew 19. Would you please stand with me? We'll be reading verses 1 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and healed, uh, he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What Therefore God has joined together. Let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command uh, to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, he who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that even though it's difficult, your spirit will work in us. Father, I pray that we will soften our hearts and listen. Not not just to hear this story, probably a story that we already know, but that we can be doers of your word that we can put into practice. Father, we know it's, it's your will that we become more like Christ and less like ourselves. And I pray that we will apply your word to our lives for that goal, for that purpose in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. We see here a, uh, a movement that's happening. Uh, Verse 1 says, When Jesus had finished these words, which words is He talking about? Well, He's talking about chapter 18, where Jesus, uh, the disciples, started this argument as who is going to be number one in the kingdom of heaven. And that developed into Jesus teaching them some things about the kingdom and and what it is to be living for the kingdom and what it's like to live in a community of believers. How do believers get along? How does this happen that we have people from different backgrounds, they come together and uh, do things for the glory of God? How, How does that happen? And Matthew 18 goes through that. It talks about the purity of the church, that God wants a pure church. And to arrive to that pure church, we're supposed to one another be confronting each other with our sins and be repenting of that. But not only that, but we're also supposed to be forgiving one another. Uh, Understanding that that, uh, God has forgiven us a debt much bigger than uh, what someone has done against us. After these words, after He finished these words, He departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So we have a geographical movement that has happened here. Gone from Galilee to cross the Jordan on the other side. You'll remember that uh, one time... Uh, Jesus was going from Jerusalem up to Galilee, and it was necessary for him to go through Samaria. He wanted to talk with a woman that was there at the well. You you remember that. This time he decides to avoid that area and and crosses over into Gentile territory. It says that it's uh, the area of Judea, but he's on the other side of the Jordan. And uh, all this uh, would have taken some time. So not only do we have a geographical movement, but we have time elapsing. Now, I I mention this because uh, this, in a certain sense, is kind of a historical type genre. But the the author is being very picky in what he chooses. We know that rhetoric is the art of persuasion, and it's it's about speaking persuasively, but here we have a text. We don't have oral communication. And so in Literature, we don't talk about necessarily uh, rhetoric. We talk more about point of view. Now, we've all been aware of point of view. You pick up a newspaper, and uh, XYZ politician is a saint. A saint. But you pick up another newspaper, and what do they say? He's worse than the devil, right? There is a point of view that is being expressed, and and we've come to almost uh, despise this point of view that comes through every aspect of, of the media. We come to kind of despise that we see this point of view. Well, in the Gospel of Matthew, there is a point of view that is being expressed. There is a perspective that is being given. And in the Bible, it's not shy of telling you why. Now, you can see this develop throughout all the passages of Scripture, but to get a better view of it, let's go to 2 Timothy 3.16. It's a passage that you're very familiar with. 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. There, There is a perspective, there's a point of view in the Scripture that it's preparing you to be... To act like God would act, uh, we see from Romans chapter eight, verse twenty-nine, that it's the will of the Father that we become like the Son, that we act uh, like the Son, that we behave like the Son who always did the will of the Father. So uh, there is a perspective here. Now, the reason I mention this is not just to talk about literary theory. That's not the point. Uh, the point is is that there's a lot of stuff that could have. Uh, happen, or that did happen, from the time that they left from Galilee and moved to the other side of the Jordan. How did they cross? Was there a bridge? Did they use a boat? Did they use some of those inner tubes? Have you seen that documentary where Netanyahu's going down the Jordan in an inner tube? Have you seen that? Did, Did they use inner tubes? Did they stop along the way at maybe a rest stop, had a little cup of coffee, maybe a baguette? But what happened from the time they left Galilee to they're on the other side of the Jordan? It doesn't say. It doesn't mention. It's not because it's not truthful, but Matthew is editing the story for a certain purpose. And that purpose is to unite this aspect of forgiving one another with what he's about to say about marriage and divorce. He's very purposefully ignoring certain things because he has a theological message for us. And it's important that we don't divorce chapter 18 from chapter 19. As we look forward in this and we start thinking about this, that this aspect of being forgiven, this huge debt, and therefore we should forgive one another horizontally. Vertically we've been uh, pardoned a huge debt and that should have a, 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 a relation to how we treat one another. And then it goes into this aspect of About divorce. Now, as we see here, there's this movement in geography. He leaves a lot of stuff out, stuff that would be very interesting, I think. But he leaves it out and he says that there's large crowds followed him. We don't know if he left Galilee on a way for one of the high feasts. We do know that since the Mount of Transfiguration, every step he's taking is a step closer to the cross. And that's his destination, is to go to the cross. Here he's going. We don't know if he's in a crowd or in a caravan. And as he's healing people, more people are being added on. Or is the situation that he just took off? He and his disciples are walking down, and uh, people are spotting him and saying, hey, it's Jesus. Hurry. Go get Uncle Bob. Bring him here. Uh, and he's there healing Uncle Bob. We, we don't know exactly how. But there is a group of people, and they are following him, and the other thing that it doesn't let us know is what's the intention of their heart. It says that he healed them there. Are they following him just because he can provide health, or are they deciding to be disciples of Jesus Christ? Are they putting aside everything that they own and taking up their cross and following Jesus, or is he an ends to a mean? Like, is he? Are they going to be able to be healed, and that's why they want to follow him? It doesn't say, it doesn't give us the reason. But we know that uh, a little bit later, there'll be a whole crowd of people saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then a week later, they'll be screaming, crucify Him, crucify Him. Interesting, right? Here's this whole group of people, and Matthew decides to leave out a lot of the details to then jump into this aspect that the Pharisees came to Jesus and they're testing Him. Now, Matthew allows us to see the intentions of the heart of the Pharisees. Inside of them, they don't have a desire to know more, to get closer to God. They're they're having this desire to test him, to see if they can catch him in something. And they have this question, is it lawful for a, a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? It's a rather vague statement. How how would the test work? Well, it doesn't tell us exactly how the test would work, but we do know that John the Baptist got into trouble because he started talking bad about Herod's marriage, right? You remember that? And he had a rather abrupt ending, uh, being beheaded. We know from Matthew chapter 12 that Jesus was doing miracles, and the people saw the miracles that Jesus was doing, and they said, this guy must be the Christ. Hmm. Pharisees said, no way, he's not. He's doing this in the power of Satan. So at that moment, they have totally rejected Jesus. Now they're just trying to figure out how they can get rid of him, how they can show the people that he's at fault, or better yet, can you imagine if they could catch Jesus saying something, maybe even against Herod? Maybe Herod would just kill him off, and their problem would be solved, and he would be gone. They're testing him. And they want to test them about this aspect of marriage. Any reason at all. There's, there's two different schools. Uh, one had a very strict uh, idea about divorce and that basically it couldn't be done. Well, there was another group that they were much more liberal. Uh, she burns the toast. You can divorce her. She gets old. You can divorce her. You know, just whatever happens in your life that day and you decide you want to, And this debate was going on. And you can see from the response of the disciples that this idea was kind of very prevalent in them. Even in them, the the guys who are following Jesus. Verse 4 says, And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Uh, Let me stop here just to make the the point. Uh, Some years back, we we wouldn't have to make the point. Uh, But there are two genders, male and female. God made it that way. God created male, God created female. As we read just in Genesis chapter 2, this is by God's design. I don't have the freedom to self-identify myself as something other than what God has created me. He goes back to creation. And in creation, he tells them, God created man and woman. And not only this, but verse 5 says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined with his wife. So God creates male and female, and it has this purpose of being united. And they're supposed to leave father and mother To be joined together. There's this aspect of one flesh. And let me make a little short pause here. It's very unhealthy. It's very unhealthy when a person does not want to leave father and mother. When the two become one. It's like two are trying to become one and they've got this appendage over here. Like a washer or the vacuum cleaner gets messed up and say, no, no, honey, I'll call my daddy, and, and my dad will know how to fix this. That, that's, that's awkward. That, that creates awkward situations. Or, uh, honey, don't try to cook the turkey. Let, let's just ask my mom to do that this year. That, that creates problems, doesn't it? None, none of you? None know of this ever happened? It does create problems when there's not a separation, when the, when the two can't become one, when they're still, like, tied, and they're like, I love both of them. And they should separate to become one flesh. It's also sad when parents still try to manipulate their kids. Oh, I'm so lonely. Well, go get some friends. Come to church and meet some people, you know? They'll try to manipulate their kids, and their kids feel sorry for them. It's sad. But there's this aspect here that they're supposed to become one flesh. The two become one. And then it says, verse 6, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now this is a very interesting paradox that we find here. How do the two people get together? Well, I guess like how any other two people get together. I mean, how does that happen? they are at Starbucks, and the guy's like, hey. And she's like, hey. And somehow they exchange numbers and then they start talking, right? I mean, that's what people do. You see it on Hallmark all the time. Uh, They like each other and they come together. But what's interesting is that regardless of the situation, regardless of the spiritual life, regardless of anything that's happening, these two that decide to become one flesh are joined together by God. So therefore what was just a horizontal thing becomes a spiritual thing. It becomes a lot more than just, I like her and she likes me. It becomes something much bigger than just the relationship between two people. Because now it's God being involved in creating one flesh, and they're joined together. And furthermore, it says, let no man separate. Can you separate flesh? You can, but it hurts. It hurts really bad. And if you try to pretend that it doesn't hurt to have your arm ripped off or have your leg ripped off, you're going to end up having a lot of bitterness and anger in your life that will overflow to other people. People who try to act like, I'm okay. That was nothing. I'm glad I'm over with that. They have a Inside of them because they were one flesh and it got ripped apart. Regardless of the circumstances, it got ripped apart and there is pain there, regardless if the person wants to acknowledge that pain or not. And usually that pain ends up spilling out onto other people, children, another spouse, in the church. It just happens. There's Jesus' response. They asked for the possibility of their being divorced for any reason. And Jesus goes back to the beginning and saying that they were created, and they were created for a purpose of becoming one flesh. Not multiple flesh, not a flesh, one flesh with tumors attached to it, but one flesh. They said to him, They got him. He opened his mouth, so they got him, right? There's no good way of answering this question, so they've got him. You can imagine as they are listening to him, they're just probably smirking over there, like, ha ha ha, ha, ha we got him. What did they say? Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Oh, can you imagine? They're trying to turn the people against Jesus. The Jesus, uh, the people have been uh, have as uh, Moses as a prophet. They listened to the laws of of Moses, and now all of a sudden, this guy, this rabbi, who they're following, he seems to contradict what Moses said. This has got to be a huge problem. And uh, he goes and replies to them again. Now. Um, before we move forward, I do want to say that what Jesus has said, He's already stated it before. You see it in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 through 32. He, he talks about how you're not supposed to get divorced. That's not supposed to happen. In fact, if we go over there to uh, Matthew 5, uh, we'll see that He, he goes on and, and talks about some other things. Um, he, he talks about uh, not making a, a false vow, verse 33. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Would that be applicable to marriage? It sure is. And on a certain day, you say that I will take this person to be my husband, my wife. And he says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. How about, uh, uh, it talks further on uh, about um verse 40, about someone taking your coat. Is that applicable to marriage? Yeah. You're there laying in the bed all covered up, and what does she do? She rips it all off of you, and she has it all for herself. And you wake up with no she's at all. It's a joke. Um, this is very applicable to how we live. This is very applicable to how we live. Now, going back to Matthew 19, uh we see here they have tried to get him on. Moses has commanded to give her a certificate of divorce. And they're mentioning, they're referencing Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. What's interesting is if you were to go to Deuteronomy 24, 1, you do not see a command that this is what you're supposed to do, but you see a permission that is being granted. It's not a command for you do this, but rather in a certain situation, this can be done. It's an interpretive error to take what God has suggested or permitted and elevate it to His command. Yet, we're experts at doing that, are we not? God clearly says, go into all the world and make disciples. Uh teaching them the gospel, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We will debate years as to what that means. And then at the end say, it probably doesn't apply to me. And then we'll get a suggestion and we'll say, hot dog, that's the gospel truth. We'll obey that. We play this game all the time just like they're doing. And what's scary about what they're doing here is that these are religious people These are people who say that they fear God. These are people who who say that they love God and that they're just searching for the truth. And all it's doing here is that it's exposing their heart, that they have a heart that's ill intent. They want to test Jesus. Why do we do what we do? Because we want what we want. Our heart dictates and we try to find excuses to make whatever we want to do legitimate. That's what we do. We look for ways that we can legitimize what we want to do. He says, uh, Moses commanded. Moses did not command. He gave permission. Now, verse 8, it says, And he said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. Uh, because of the hardness of your heart. That's, uh, that's one word. That's just one word. And it's a very rare word. You only find it here and in Mark where it's recorded the same passage. So in all of the New Testament, only Jesus uses this word. And this word has this idea of an unyielding frame of mind, a hardness of heart, a a coldness, a stubbornness that, that the person does not want to give. And Jesus says that... Moses permitted this because of a hardness of heart. When you look at a hardened heart, uh, usually a hardened heart happens because a person gets hurt and they decide that they, they don't want to be hurt again. So they start to build walls to try to protect it. But you know what happens. They let the guard down for somebody and that person, of course, is a sinner. And what do they do? They hurt you too. And the person's heart gets harder and harder and harder with the idea that somehow they're going to protect themselves by making their heart heart so hard. But that's not what they do at all. They end up disobeying God by having a hardened heart. They disregard what he said about forgiving one another. See, if there's no forgiveness in a marriage, you can't move forward. I, uh, <laughs> I unfortunately have a bad tendency as I'm driving to point out things that no one cares about. And uh, we, my wife and I, we had just gotten married. And uh, we're going down to Florida uh, for our honeymoon, and um, she's there talking to me. And uh, I, I see a house, a, a beautiful old house. And the thing is, is in my mind, I justify the fact that I need to interrupt her to point out this house because we're going to pass it, and then she won't have the opportunity to see it. Not that she cares about the house. I mean, I care about the house, and so what do I do? Oh, look at the house! Like, She's Okay. She keeps on talking. It was about uh, two hours into the trip. All of a sudden, she's very quiet. This is not how I imagined our honeymoon to be. Why? Because I was inconsiderate. Look at the horses. They look like every other horse, right? Look at the horses. Look at the cows. And kept on interrupting her. Forgiveness has to be part of a marriage. Vulnerability has to be still part of a marriage. Because if not, you end up hardening your heart and say, fine, I'm not going to talk at all. I'm not going to point anything out. Now, I've learned to use a filter. I, 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 I bet only 25% of the stuff I see, I, I share with them. I'm like... You know, <laughs> we're going down the highway. Like, uh, I've worked on it. That's part of forgiveness. That's part of learning of what you're doing wrong, of being inconsiderate, and repenting of it. And that's what marriage is about. But here's a hardness of heart. They are protecting themselves, and all they're doing is violating God's law. It says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not Bend this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for uh, immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. Now, as we look at this passage here and what Jesus has done, is he commanding that if adultery happens, you are to divorce your wife? Be careful. Is there a command on Jesus' part? Well, there's not a command. Again, there is permission. There's permission to do that, but there's not a command. You say, well, infidelity is a big thing. You're telling me that a person who has been cheated on should stay in that marriage? Well, I wonder if there's any examples of the Bible of such a situation. Of course, immediately your mind is going to what book? Hosea, right? You remember how God told Hosea to go get a wife? And they had three kids. And after the third kid, what happened? She went and found lovers, plural. Not one, a plurality. And spent time with them. In fact, thought all the blessings she had came from them and not from her husband. She rejoiced in them until the part that she was totally used up and she's on to be sold at a market, a slave market. She has no funds, nothing. What does God tell Hosea to do? Go and kill her, right? Go and, and, and pull her around, you know, and, and make her suffer, ridicule her. Post pictures on Facebook about her. Buy her back. Redeem her from her situation. And it's a picture of what God does. Israel had had gone away multiple times. Israel had gone multiple times away from God, and yet God was willing to take Israel back. In case we think that we're better than Israel, God forgives us our sins over and over again. When we choose to go after other things, the idols of our heart, God forgives us over and over again. And he doesn't just forgive us and say, well, we're not going to talk about it anymore. You just go over there. But he restores us. 1 John 1, 1.9. He cleanses us from all that filth. That's what he does in our lives. So don't take it as a commandment from God here because we have an example of God Himself of what He does in our life. How he restores us, even while we're unfaithful to Him. Now, this is a kind of a hard saying that we've seen here. And the disciples acknowledge it, and they say in verse 10 uh, the disciples said to him, If the relationship of a man with his wife is like that, is like this, it's better not to marry. They're like, this is ridiculous. You mean i got to put up with her the whole time? I can't just get rid of her whenever I don't like her? Now, picture who these are. He didn't get some people off the street, some unsaved people. It's his disciples that he's been working with, involved in their lives, and this is the attitude that they're having. They're like, you're better off single. Jesus goes into talking about three different conditions. Those who are eunuchs from birth, uh, those who have been made eunuchs, and then those who are eunuchs for the kingdom's sake. Does he exalt one person over another? No. Uh, there are people who are married, and that's fantastic. That's great. Uh, there's a uh, uh, when two Christians get to marry. That's that's something great. We see that mystery in Ephesians chapter 22, uh, chapter 5, verse 22 through 33. We see this mystery of uh, Christ in the church. And as Christ gave himself for the church, uh, the church uh, submits to uh, to Christ. Uh, We see this picture of of marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. That's that's a beautiful thing. How about uh, if the person got married to an unsaved person? Well, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this also, where if the person is married to someone unsaved, they have the opportunity to be sanctified through that process and maybe even reaching that unsafe spouse for the Lord. Not that you go in purposely doing that, but if you find yourself in a situation where you've accepted Christ and the other person has not, then you have the opportunity to reach them with the gospel. But then there are some people who choose not to get married at all. They decide to use their life for God, totally. There's a blessing in each aspect of this. There's not one better than the other. So as we look at this passage here, we see that we need to obey God's will over what God uh, makes permissible. And usually we run to what God makes permissible over the, what God has willed. But what we see in this passage is that Jesus is saying, obey God's will, obey God's design. And how do we do that? We do that by knowing God. That's what Jesus ended up doing. He pointed them right back to God, to the creation order. Look what he did. Get to know God. How do we get to know God? Through his word. We don't read this as like a a, a three-step manual for how to change our lives. We read this to get to know God. And that's what he answers back with them is he goes back to creation and the intent that God had in marriage. How else do we do this? How else do we obey God's will? Well, we do it by submitting to His will, too. This is something very important. Had the Pharisees ever read Genesis 1 and 2? Oh, yeah, they read it every year. They knew it. They had it memorized. Many of them had, uh, had the whole Torah memorized, and they could recite it. They knew it. But they didn't submit to His will. They didn't submit to His design. See, they had desires in their heart, and they decided to do the desires of their heart over what God had revealed. That's what they ended up doing. God exposes what's in their hearts here. Jesus exposes what's going on. So we obey God's will uh, in our life, and we do this by knowing God, by submitting to His will for our family. And we do that by submitting to uh, being involved in a community of faith together. Now, it might be possible that you can't do this because you've never accepted Christ as your Savior. You're looking at this about forgiving people, forgiving people who've done wrong to you, forgiving even somebody who has been unfaithful to you, and you're like, what are you talking about? No, never. I I will find justice myself. And it's because you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You maybe have some stories Maybe you know some things, maybe you have some traditions that Palm Sunday you come to church, Easter you come to church. But you've never accepted Jesus Christ. you never accepted what He did on the cross as what saves you from your sins. At that time on the cross, He took your sin, your guilt, and gave to you His justice, His righteousness. You've never put your faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. You're lost You're with the wrath of God on you. Today you can be saved. Today, you can accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and, and live differently according to His will and not just according to what He permits. Two points, and that's all I have. we got to know God, and we have to submit to His will. Let's pray. Father, many of us are here, and probably we have made mistakes that we repent of. Father, thank you that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all righteousness, that it doesn't matter what sin we commit that you will forgive us. Father, we know that it was your intent that marriage would be a joining of two people to become one flesh. Father, I pray that we won't get sidetracked on what the world tries to offer as marriage. Father, I pray that we will look to your design and submit. Father, I pray that we will know you by reading your word and that we will submit to doing your will. Father, if there's anyone here who has not accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, I pray that today will be the day of of salvation for them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.